some pictures had emerged of the then Duchess of Cambridge, topless on holiday. The very next day, Kate appeared at a mosque and she pulled it off marvellously. She went business as usual. She seemed quite calm, but William, for sure, it had really affected him. You can really see what a fantastic support the Queen is to the King. He really needs someone solid, dependable, who understands him and who, most importantly, can make him laugh. And I don't think he'd be able to be the success that he is without her at his side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of a Right Royal podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. In this week's episode, we're looking at love. Aww. From a man stepping down as king for the woman he loves to Kate and William's swoony proposal in Kenya, royal love lives have always been a subject of fascination for keen royalists. To help us navigate royal love lives, we have writer and broadcaster Hugo Vickers, who has written extensively on the royal family and possesses some incredible in-depth knowledge on royal relationships. We also have Kate Manzi, an award-winning journalist, writer and commentator who will help us lift the lid on royal romances. But first, we can't kick off the show without the love of our lives, Emily Nash. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, it's lovely to be back. What I'm was your first love, much. Emily? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my We're goodness. We're going there. Yeah, no, no one needs to hear this. There's first boyfriend. How old are you? Again, no, no one needs to hear this. <laughs> Let's stick to what we know best, which is royal loves. But before we talk to you, Emily, let's hear from our sponsor. Ooh. As you know, here at Hello, we love all things royal, and our sponsor today has as much love and dedication to the royals as we do, offering a wide variety of fascinating, high-quality documentaries and analysis. True Royalty TV is an on-demand service that allows you to watch hundreds of regally-themed titles about royalty through the ages and around the world. Nothing is quite as exciting as a royal romance, and True Royalty TV carries many shows about our favourite royal couples. Find out about royal romances past in Whatever Happened to the Windsors, the story of Edward VIII's abdication of the throne to marry Wallace Simpson. There's also a look at current royal love stories and what's to come for our future king and queen in the feature documentary, William and Kate into the future. Luckily for our Right Royal listeners, True Royalty TV are offering a very special offer of a three-month subscription only for the price of one. To receive this amazing deal, all you need to do is visit trueroyalty.tv forward slash hello to sign up today. Thank you so much to True Royalty TV for sponsoring this episode. The platform is available in all major app stores and streaming platforms. Now back to the show. I'm going to put you on the spot first thing. Top three royal romances. Oh, good grief. Well, I think just because it's one I followed all the way through, I would say William and Kate. You're number one or you're number three? Oh, look, I'm not ranking. Oh. I'm you just going to put them three. out there. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, Harry and Meghan's engagement and wedding was a big moment that I covered. So that definitely be up there for me. Let's but, not forget you came back from maternity leave very, very briefly to attend I their did. engagement. I remember that. I did. And then also to cover their wedding. So yeah, sorry to my little girl for that. But it was <laughs> great fun to cover. But then I think I have to say probably the late Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. Because they really saw so much together and they were such a tight unit, despite the fact that, you know, they spent lots and lots of time apart. They just always seemed to have such affection for each other and that sort of twinkle in their eyes where you'd see them catch each other's sight. And I think that's something that we can all aspire to. Yeah, that's nice. I agree with your first two choices, but I would swap the Queen and Prince Philip for... King Charles and Camilla. That is because, a very good shout. You know, they found themselves again. They married again. And from all the stories we've heard from season one and season two, they seem to be just ideal for one another. They really are. I think they have so much fun together. And you can really see what a fantastic support the Queen is to the King. You know, he has got such a difficult job and... At the age he's at, taking this on and being this global statesman and having to work harder than ever before, mm. he really needs someone solid, dependable, who understands him and who most importantly can make him laugh. And I don't think he'd be able to be the success that he is without her at his side. 
I have some thoughts. Oh, what are your thoughts? One of my favourites is very tragic. Margaret and Peter Townsend. Oh, oh that is tragic. You yeah. can tell you watched The Crown. I know. <laughs> I mean, it was all Vanessa Kirby, but um, that was very heartbreaking. But also, why has no one mentioned Zara and Mike Tindall? Oh, yes. What, what a duo. I love those two. They, they're really good together, actually. I think they have a lot of fun together and they're obviously very, very in love. And that's, yeah, wonderful to see. Yeah, that's a great spot. Now, these couples obviously love each other very much, but it's not something we see a lot of publicly. No, I mean, I think they express it in different ways. I mean, we have seen in recent years Harry and Meghan taking a slightly different approach. They're a bit more tactile. They'll hold hands. William and Kate are sometimes accused of being a little lacking in public displays of affection. But I've always said that when they're in the public eye, they're usually carrying out an engagement or doing something that's part of their role. And I guess it's not really professional to be hugging and kissing your way through things. Of course, we had that lovely moment at the 2012 Olympics. Where oh, they, I love where that they, photo. Yeah, exactly, where they hugged each other with excitement. And I think that what stands out for me about those two is, again, like the late Queen and late Duke of Edinburgh, they just seem to have a lot of fun together. They seem to be a great team and they kind of know each other so well that they can be on an engagement and they kind of have a sense of where the other is. You can read quite a lot, I think, into the the body language. You've been with them in person. Do they sometimes break protocol when the cameras are not there? What can you tell us? No, look, I think what you see is what you get. They're out there in the public eye and they're doing what they're meant to be doing. There's definitely a lot of teasing. And I think the way that you see the fun in their relationship is at these times when they have competitive sports. Yes. When they wind each other up, when there's a bit of gentle teasing. We saw it recently in Mike Tyndall's podcast, yes. The Good, the Bad and the Rugby, where they were sort of gently ribbing each other. And I always think that's a sign of a good relationship when people can slightly take the mickey out of one another. But you I know it's that. all meant in great affection. Absolutely. They are sort of a classic married couple, aren't they? Because married couples aren't completely tactile because you're just a pairing you don't need to be really well they've been together for what sort of two decades exactly you know wow that's crazy it's a long time and a lot of that was private while they were at university and then in the following years they managed to do a lot together without people being fully across it but I think what you have to remember is that to put yourself in that position if you are not a member of the royal family you're not just falling in love with the person you are adopting a whole new way of life mm. and taking quite significant sacrifices. So you've got to believe this is real love and that it's going to last the distance. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not that profound for like the likes of like Mike Tyndall, for instance, because how would you describe them? Non-working royals? So for Mike yeah. and Zara, they have the sort of luxury of being non-working yeah. royals. So they're not under the same scrutiny. They're not carrying out duties on behalf of the king or on behalf of the government. Nevertheless, they are part of the royal family. So they do have to be thoughtful about the things that they're doing and the way they're seen in public. Mm. But they are, to all extents and purposes, private individuals. So it's a slightly different game for them. Whereas you're so right with the likes of Kate and Meghan, you are entering a completely different way of life when you're marrying one of the heirs, like that close in line to the throne. And I mean, how well prepared do you think you need to be for something like that? Because there is an argument that Megan has said herself that she had no idea just what to expect. So, I mean, it is an important thing to be aware of as much as you love the person. Yeah, and I think it's something that certainly Harry's talked about a lot in the past, that the difficulty in finding love for him was finding someone who was willing to put up with everything that came with his status and with his profile. And William and Kate, I think, have navigated this extremely well over the years. But it's not been easy, the scrutiny they're under, the interest that they generate. You know, there's a huge amount of love and support for them. But they must occasionally wish they could just pop down to the cinema, go for a pint without anyone noticing, just be a normal couple. And I guess they have to just be inventive and find ways of doing things away from the public eye. Which they have done. Yeah. We do hear about William and Kate going to their local pub up at Amma. And also what we see is the sort of fairy tale element of a relationship. But for those of us who've been married for some time, hello darling, (laughs) do they have rows about who's putting the bins out? Do they question (laughs) who is going to be doing the kids' bedtime? It's probably a bit different from our lifestyles. But these are the things that come with long relationships. And I think that 
if you can weather the mundanities of daily life, then you're on a solid footing. Well, I'm a month in and um, have many pearls of wisdom about wedded life, Emily. Let, let's do this <laughs> chat again in 10 years' time. Yes. Now, I kind of miss sometimes that they're not so touchy-touchy. I'm talking obviously about William and Kate, but then I love that they actually are not like that because when they show that side, like their 10th wedding anniversary video, I like died. I mean, I love that. And we also get that side from Princess Beatrice and her husband, Eduardo, and we get that from Jack and Eugenie. So we do get it from other sides, which I really, really love. That being said, though, obviously the elephant in the room here is that Meghan and Harry are very tactile with each other in public. But I also love the chemistry between them because they're obviously so in love and so into one another. And I think that's kind of nice to see as well. But as you were saying, you know, they do do date nights and then they've got these moments that they're able to be romantic behind closed doors. And I think a big part of that is these swoony proposals that we've heard of over the years, but we haven't seen them. But for instance, William and Kate, it was in Kenya, wasn't it? That's right. William spent a long time travelling around Africa with his mum's engagement ring in his backpack, (laughs) which must have been slightly nerve-wracking. And he talked about that at their engagement interview. Well, as you may recognise now, it's it's my mum's engagement ring. So, of course, it's very special to me. as Kate's very special to me now as well, it was only right that two were put together. But uh, it was my way of making sure that my mother didn't miss out on uh, today and the excitement and the, uh, the fact that we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. You know, they were able to go in, have this magical moment away from the world's media. They later told us about it. But it shows that where there's a will, there's a way. We know now that Harry and Meghan spent quite a lot of time in Botswana together very soon after they met. And I think it's lovely that both couples have had these opportunities to develop their relationships, to get to know each other away from the scrutiny that inevitably comes with royal romances. Now, Emily, how do these royals manage to keep their romance alive? That's a very good question. I think like many other couples, they like to have date nights. We've heard about William and Kate going for quiet pub dinners. near. They love takeaways. They like a takeaway. They like to watch movies. We know they watch, of course, all the BAFTA nominees each year together. And I think having some time away from the kids and away from the trials and tribulations of daily life is good for all couples. Royal tours also kind of, I mean, they're hard work. We know they're hard work from what we've heard. But also they're great because they sometimes do things outside of the public itinerary. It's an opportunity for them to have a bit of breathing space. These tours are fairly grueling. They're quite relentless in the timetabling. And of course, they're having to be out there with their game faces on, saying hi to people, meeting people, flying the flag for the UK. So when they get an opportunity, and I'm thinking of William and Kate in Belize going off and diving, they weren't alone for that. But what a fantastic memory to take back and to have for many, many years to come. And similarly, when we were out in Fiji with Harry and Meghan a few years ago, they were able to go and spend a night on this incredible private island. And, you know, they weren't long married. They were expecting their first child together. These precious moments that don't come around very often. Right, I've gotten very excited about royals and love. So, Emily, who are we talking to today? Well, I'm really excited to welcome my friend, the royal editor, author and commentator, Kate Mansey. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. It's great to have you here. Thanks for coming. Long time listener, I hear. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here. And I always like listening to this because there's always something I hadn't thought of or something that comes up one of your guests says. And I always think, yeah, I've forgotten about that. So it's really, really interesting for me. We like to try and jog a memory, our own especially. (laughs) Uh, You've covered the royal family for many, many years now. You've travelled with them. You've covered births, weddings and funerals. We're talking about royal romances. What is it about them that intrigues people so much? I think this is one of the nicest parts about my job, actually, (laughs) which is that we get to follow those brilliant love stories that are written so large, they're kind of iconic love stories, the prince and the princess getting married and all those sort of fairy tale moments. And then to try to lift, unpeel it, I suppose, and kind of look behind it and see is it really all it's cracked up to be and everything that transpires. So I think back to Kate William when they got engaged, which was... I'd been covering the royal family for a chunk of time before that, several years. But that was the first big royal wedding 
that I covered. And for me, it was the kind of Charles and Diana wedding that loomed large in my childhood, showing my age. But to have the next generation getting married on that scale with that huge world interest was fantastic. And everything about it, of course, that long lead up to it, would they, wouldn't they? They had the break. They were like Ross and Rachel from Friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they came back. We were on a break. And was it going to happen? Wasn't it going to happen? So when they did finally have that engagement, in a way, the engagement was almost more exciting in terms of news value, covering it as a journalist, than the wedding, which sort of unfolded along the lines of protocol, as one might expect, and with great splendour in Westminster Abbey and the drama of it all. But the engagement was wonderful. You saw, as we now know her as the Princess of Wales, wearing the former Princess of Wales's fantastic sparkling sapphire ring with those wonderful diamonds around the outside and the history of it, that kind of sense that there was a fresh start with a couple who really knew one another, who loved one another, and that slight trepidation as she was in front of the cameras, you know, slightly shaking as you would be. And so much kind of goodwill, I think, for this young couple with everything ahead of them, but also with this brilliant stability behind them as well that we all thought they were right for each other. Sort of over the, over the years, William's really looked after me. He's treated me sort of very well as a great um, sort of loving boyfriend he is. But, um, no, he's very, very supportive of me um, in good times and also through the bad times. And, um, you know, that's, that's very special to me. It wasn't a flash in the pan, that one, was it? I think we were talking about this with someone earlier. It was a slow burner. The relationship was very established. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, and I, I don't think anything that Prince William does is a flash in the pan. I think no. he's, he's very thoughtful and everything had to be right. And, oh, goodness, the history of it behind him, knowing what happens when it goes so badly wrong. Yeah, it's course. amazing that him and Harry actually went ahead and got married at all, I think, in some ways. Yeah. You couldn't blame them if they just thought, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. Did the engagement, did it really surprise you? Because I remember, I mean, I wasn't too young, but I wasn't oh involved God, in journalism for, Will, for <laughs> William's one. But I remember Harry's engagement. There were rumours like the week before we were like, they're engaged, something's going to happen. You know, I remember that. Was that the case with William and Kate or did it really catch you by surprise? I do remember. So I wasn't actually specialising in royals at that point, And I remember my colleague who was on the newspaper I was working on having the misfortune to have gone on a family holiday that oh. week. <laughs> um, being in a different time zone Emily entirely. In. When the new, well, yeah, no, not, not That's long after that. That's It's actually not. I did, did the cover the royal wedding, but I was part of a bigger team. But I do remember thinking... God, you could like quite literally wait for something like this to happen for 12 years and then just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it's just extremely bad luck. But you're right. I think looking at Harry and Meghan's as well, we definitely had a sense that something was, you know, there was that big Vanity Fair piece, wasn't there, mm-hmm. with her talking about we're just enjoying our moment right now. The time will come for us to yes. to tell the story. And at that point, I think we all just started counting down Cancel- the days. Cancelling holidays. <laughs> well, yes. Not me, yeah, you were on that leave. I was on maternity leave back. and I thought, oh, God, here we go. Okay. <laughs> that was the thing, wasn't it? The whole world was expecting it. But when it happened, it was brilliant. And, of course, all the the things that probably William feared about the machine operating and kicking into gear all happened so quickly. And they did that brilliant engagement interview. And it always makes me laugh when people say, oh, why do you call her Kate and copy, you know, when I'm writing yeah. about them? And oh, I think, we get those actually, emails all the time. Look back on that interview and, and William calls her Kate the whole way through. You know, that was how she was known. And rightly so that we don't call her Catherine and Bert and all that sort of thing. But that was brilliant. It was just an insight into that kind of marriage and that romance, wasn't it? Yeah. And like you say, it did feel so genuine. I think you couldn't sort of help but root for them. And especially, as you say, with William's background and Harry, I think everyone felt when they'd found their person, it was just a a lovely remedy to the tragedy of their earlier lives, I think. It felt like the closing of a circle in many ways. That's right, because everybody wants to see a happy ending for both those princes who we saw walking behind the coffin and anyone of any age can a certain age can remember that moment and wish them well and here was William seemingly with his beautiful bride-to-be and showing the world that they love one another and of course there was a ring the Princess Diana ring and there's that natural link between oh is it going to be like Charles and Diana we remember that dreadful interview in which they were asked if they were in love and Prince Charles said as he was then another king said you know whatever love means I'm I'm amazed that she's uh, been brave enough to take me on (laughs) and I suppose in love of course 
<laughs> Whatever in love means. <laughs> she was very young, he was a bit older, and it just didn't seem like a pairing or certainly not a meeting of minds or that kind of right fit. Whereas we saw that with Kate and William, that they very much were a right fit. And there is that natural tendency to compare dad's relationship with Princess of Wales to son's relationship with the future Princess of Wales. But actually, if you look at Philip and the Queen, Prince Philip and the Queen, that's a much better comparison yeah. um, mm. because they actually had that kind of secret engagement for a long time. We understand that there was an agreement that would get married. King George VI, the late Queen's father, said, I'd much prefer the announcement was made after she turns 21. She had that brilliant speech in which she dedicated her life to the nation. And then it was after that, in the summer in July, that they actually announced the engagement and married in the November of 1947. And there are many more parallels, I think, between Philip and the late Queen's romance and Kate and William than there are. But time-wise, you know, lots of people want to compare them to Diana and Charles, and I get that. But even to the point that when they got married, the Queen and Philip went off to live in Malta. Mm. And they had that kind of almost a little bit away from the cameras. They had that proper seclusion. extended honeymoon. Yeah. Exactly. And they loved it. It was one of the places where the Queen, you know, felt most at home and she could be a, a naval officer's wife. Similarly, Kate and William had the same luxury, if you mm. like, when they went off to Anglesey. He was in RAF Valley and she was like RAF wife in a way. She um, was going down to the supermarket, wasn't she? I remember her getting, were, weren't they? getting they snapped down at the Oh, the, the trolley. Local. Yeah. <laughs> she was <laughs> pushing the trolley around the supermarket. They were going to the cinema with their baseball caps on and they did have that time as well. So I think in some ways that marriage has been the blueprint and there's a much better comparison but of course we all reached to Diana and, and Charles because that was much more dramatic I expect. That's a really good point. There are so many parallels. You're absolutely right. Talking about William and Kate because it's something I know you've covered extensively. You were on their first tours as a married couple. Can you tell us a bit about just how intense the interest was in them at that time? I think it was quite hard to watch, actually, those initial months because he was somebody who isn't naturally a show-off and she was put under the spotlight. And I think she felt that pressure intensely mm. and wanting to do the best job she could possibly do. She's very dedicated. She's very committed. I think she put a lot of the pressure as well on herself. And you could see her just trying to do everything right. And it just felt that she did do everything right, of course. Yeah. And she was brilliant. But that first trip to Canada, for example, she was really kind of learning her steps. And William protected her. So yeah. she wasn't standing up giving big speeches. She didn't have to do any of that kind of solo stuff straight away. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really important that he did that for her. Because they were and, treated like rock stars, weren't they? On sort of that, uh, that event in California was extraordinary. It was celebrity times 100, wasn't it? Yeah. It was unbelievable. And it was this new, again, everyone felt so happy for them. Like at any wedding, everyone's sort of thrilled that they're happy. It was a really, must have been so strange for her. It's not just that you're just a new wife adapting to a new life. You're adapting to a new job. You're in Everything, the royal family. Yeah. And you go do you stratospheric. Think, do yeah. you think they knew? Because I know the moment that they got engaged, I remember that dress that she wore went wild. I think that for me was the first time I really saw the Kate effect. Had we seen it before? I know she was photographed every day, but I don't think we had quite seen people being so obsessed with what she was wearing. And I feel like she suddenly became an icon overnight, even though she had been in our lives for, what, nine years. Do you think they knew that that was going to happen? I think that's a really good question. I think she did have a lot of attention from the paps, didn't she? And she was photographed mm. everywhere she went. And there are also, and more, if you want to talk about iconic looks, let's talk about roller disco and things Oh, yeah, like roller, that. yes, I love those. Um, you know, so these are images that will go around the world for the rest of her life and probably beyond it. But I think it was that moment that it became official, yeah. wasn't it, that really set her at that level. I, I remember everybody going nuts for that blue yeah, 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 V-neck wrap dress. dress that, yeah. Yes, that's right. The Daniela Issa. Yeah, Issa. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a fashion <laughs> expert. But, <laughs> but then all of a sudden there were knockoffs of that. You know, every, it was just crazy. Every high street shop had a version of that dress. And, and a cheap version of the ring. It was just yes. like insane. It and was. It, just, it was all from that moment on, I think. Yeah. And it's, it hasn't stopped since. I want you to cast your mind back to the South Pacific and Southeast Asia because that ended up being quite an eventful tour for them um, oh, yes. and not for 
ways that any of us were expecting when that plane took off. Gosh. Can you just give us a synopsis of what happened? Oh dear, I'm intrigued. You're asking me about the pictures, aren't you? I am. Yeah. So, shall I tell you where I... Yes, please It's all about me. I know know the story and I'm enjoying it already, (laughs) so do tell me. So we're on this big tour, Singapore. There's the big kind of Asia tour, wasn't it? It meant a lot and the Solomon Islands and it was extensive it was what was it 10 days it, it was long I'd have to check it felt like two months when we were on it <laughs> so four Sunday journalists I was one of them went on ahead to the Borneo rainforest where Kate and William were going to arrive by helicopter and be shown around to see what they were doing in the forest all this incredible work with nature and protecting life and how the plants were being supported and that sort of thing and it was lovely to be there. We had like a two-day trek and on these four-by-fours up these mountain roads and all of a sudden any kind of criticism that we had about them helicoptering in and out in their very short time scale kind of evaporated because there's no other way to get there apart than two days getting in, two days getting out. No phone reception, completely remote. And then the night before they arrived, we're all in situ waiting for this and our phones all start buzzing in this one restaurant in the hills where we actually got one bar of reception and some pictures had emerged in a European magazine of the then Duchess of Cambridge topless on holiday pat pictures though taken on a long lens and clearly massive breach of privacy none of the UK press would ever print them and weren't going to recreate those images in any way but they were already out there so already online and then as we know once something's online it can be go viral and it did of course so this is happening the night before they come in and we think they're going to pull the the tour. the tour the very next day Kate appeared at a mosque I mean talk about you know yeah, yeah. excruciating kind of timing and she pulled it off marvellously she went business as usual and then they came in the rainforest and it was clear to see that William in particular actually was rattled by it she seemed quite calm but William for sure, it had really affected him. This was what happened to his mother, you know, this intrusion from paparazzi. And here it was sort of happening all over again. And just the embarrassment of the whole thing and him feeling like he hadn't protected her. So this was all going on also on a tour where they're representing the Queen as was the late Queen. And it's the last thing they want people to be talking about. They want people to be talking about the work that they're doing on behalf of the Queen, the state, the country. And these things happen on tours. The tours that you think are going to be marvellously newsworthy turn out not to be the ones that you think you know it's all very nice but what would there be to write turn out to be you know these kind of huge events because these things change so it was extraordinary actually I remember actually being hoisted up into the Borneo didn't they (laughs) use you as the sort of guinea pig to make sure the ropes wouldn't snap you have to ask this of Roya as well Roya Nika because me and Roya were hoisted up into the canopy in the Borneo rainforest the day before the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge as was got there to test, to see whether the hoist, you know, whether we we're going to fall 40, 40 <laughs> oh <my laughs> metres down <laughs> to our that summit crazy. to our death. Although at sort of five foot ten or whatever it is I am and slightly chunkier than my dear colleague, I was the Duke of Cambridge hoist. and um, oh, charming. <laughs> <laughs> she was standing in for the Duchess. But it was incredible and actually one of the best moments I've had as a journalist to experience being up there in the rainforest canopy itself. Oh. I mean, absolutely terrifying. And of course, they did it all for the cameras. We were sort of squealing on our way up and down and, you know, having a good old look around. But they're always on show. And it's when you do the things that they do and you think, goodness, fancy doing this yeah, but no. with all the cameras and you have to look perfect and you can't put a silly face. And Is that yeah. the most difficult time for the couple that you've witnessed because that was That's quite, a really good question. I know other as well. things happen, but sometimes they happen when they're away and weeks can pass or a week can pass and they can kind of like button down the hatches. Yeah, but there it was literally like you have to show face. Like I was actually going to say, was their response to this setting the tone for future moments of controversy where they had to go on face immediately after? Yes, I think it would have been, I mean, talk about training on the job, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of yeah. having to kind of go out and face the world. It was remarkable to see how it worked and see how their team supported them and to see how he supported her, but also how the fact that he was clearly much more rattled about it than she was. And I thought that was telling as well that in the initial stages I was talking about in Canada when they went on that first big tour and she seemed, timid's not the right word, but for sure she seemed quite shy. But 
that incident for me showed that she has this kind of steel rod of metal running through her. She is no pushover. She's completely solid. And if anything, he was the one that was more worked up about it than she was. And I think that is crucial and that's telling. And that's also why they're such a great partnership. And it's her strength, her kind of steeliness. Not in a nasty Quiet way. determination. Exactly, yeah. yeah. She's probably the one calming things down all the time. <laughs> I love that. Well, it yeah, just, I think, I think so. you know, it really has obviously really stood them in good stead for everything that's gone on since. And I think you do need to be made of tough stuff <laughs> yeah. to sign up for this in the first place. Also, a poker face. Yeah. <laughs> like, seriously, they're not being able to show your true feelings because surely the day after those photos leaked, she wasn't happy, but... And you wouldn't have She's slept. getting on its business as usual. And that's we've seen her do that time and time again, haven't we? We've never. Yeah. 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 Well, I, yeah, I described it at the time as the mask. They put the mask on. They're right. like, OK, this is my business uniform now. We're mm. going out to work. You know, we've got a job to do. It's about duty. It's we'll about supporting the Queen. Mm. This is about country. All this other stuff doesn't matter. What matters is turning up, showing up, doing the day job. And I think that's why the royal family is so... You know, they attract so many followers and so many plaudits from so many people because that's all part of just getting up and getting on with it. The Queen must have been proud, oh, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. Not that she would have told them. <laughs> oh, oh. I can't remember who was telling us earlier, but we had... Oh, that they don't say thank you. I don't they, think they don't, they don't tell you well done. I'm not that's sure that's, that's true. true. That's I'm true. not sure that's true. I think yeah. that when certainly younger generations have gone off and carried out these big tours, they did used to go back and have a cup of tea with Granny and probably get some feedback. I don't know what you I think. I think they did, yeah. I think mm. they did go back and she would say kind of well done or that she'd send a note. And they'd certainly go and meet her before the tour to discuss because she's been there and done it she's yeah. been to these countries like squillions of times mm. and they would go and have a briefing beforehand with the queen as i understand it and they'd have a little debrief afterwards but it's just the embarrassment isn't it thinking oh no what's granny gonna think of my grandmother-in-law is the most famous woman in the world but of course she's yeah. seen it all before you know any crisis that those two will endure in the future the queen's been through it she's been through yeah so many kind of tough times Speaking of tough times, not all royal romances have ended well, sadly. How have attitudes changed towards romantic relationships from the royal family over the years? We had the sort of Margaret and Peter Townsend scenario where their love was thwarted. We had a spate of divorces in the 80s and 90s. Do you think that attitudes have relaxed within the family as well as within wider society and that's paved the way for people to marry divorcees like Charles and Camilla, for example, Harry and Meghan, and of course, Beatrice and Eduardo, who already has a child from a previous relationship. Yeah, I think that the royal family more than anyone realises that in order to survive, they've got to keep up with the times. Like any family, every generation's adapting to the time that it's in. And I think the Queen and Philip were quite flexible about that. I think they realised that times are moving, the way that people live, you know, was changing and we look back now, they had quite an old-fashioned relationship, really. So I think they did realise that things had to change. Yeah, like you say, three out of the four children of the late Queen, their first marriages ended in divorce. And they're not good odds. So I think they did take stock. And rather than arrogantly thinking, well, we do everything better, you know, we, we know what we're doing. They thought, well, hang on, let's make sure that people are going into this for the right reasons, perhaps. With their eyes open, I guess. Yeah, and I think things have changed. And again, you know, the royal family kind of a mirror of society and our own families to some extent, of course, quite different from how the rest of us live. But they are reflective of it in some ways. Yeah, there's divorce. And 1992 was that kind of annus horribilis. And the Queen wasn't just talking about the great fire at Windsor Castle. She was talking about the divorces and the, her children's marriages splitting up, which I think was a source of great sadness for her. But times change and people move on and they are... The three that did divorce are in a much better place, as they say. Obviously, probably the most obvious romance, the last of the test of time, was the late Queen and Prince Philip. But now, one that's copying that in a lot of ways is our current King and Queen, Charles and Camilla, who we love. (laughs) (laughs) How has public opinion about them as a couple been transformed over the last couple of decades? Because they didn't have the best... Support. They didn't have support at the beginning. The best time of things to start with. But they're so cute now. <laughs> you ship cute. them. <laughs> yeah. they, that's so nice to hear them called cute because I think <laughs> they were cute at the coronation, weren't they? And they were there side by side. He's with 
the right woman. I remember when they got married and the Queen giving the speech in which her son was home and dry with the woman that he loved. And that was a clear analogy to her love of horse racing. It was so true because he'd come through it all. It was a bad match, his first marriage, but luckily enough to have two beautiful sons out of it. And then I think now, you know, there's so many kind of blended families. There's so many, you know, life isn't as straightforward as it was. We're living longer. We're marrying for love. And he was able to get that support. And Camilla is a great support to him. And they were cute at the coronation. I love that bit where they went out to look at the soldiers at Buckingham Palace. They were home then and it felt like they'd done it, you know. And yeah. we had on the Daily Mail, the front page, we had the moment that says, darling, we've done it, was a sort of headline on that front page because there was a look between them on that balcony at Buckingham Palace and it was just like, for you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, they probably thought leading up to the day, like they thought about everything that could go wrong. And then when you get there, you're like, OK, we've done it. It's but, good. but also that, you know, the five preceding decades of them being on and off and yeah. the scrutiny and the controversy and yeah. just the huge turnaround they experienced. Well, there was that moment at the Ritz Hotel when they came out and that was when they were first pictured as a couple as such and they've been, will they, won't they? She was painted as the mysterious, malevolent, the other woman, the mistress. And over time, everyone's got over that and realised that, you know, life it's is... Happy. This happens in life. Life is messy. Life is... Relationships are difficult. Yeah. And... How nice that in many ways, I think Buckingham Palace and the institution of the monarchy is all those courtiers are relieved that it is a love story that's endured. And that's what people, I think, will remember in time. And that will be their legacy, that it was an enduring love story that maybe they should have married at first, but they didn't. But ultimately, they did come back to one another. It's a great, in many ways, a great love story in that respect. What, what do you think makes them such a great couple? I think it's like Kate and William. It's that yin and yang that she calms him down. She says, oh, come on, darling, put your paperwork away. Let's have a glass of wine or let's have a glass of whiskey in his case and she'll have a glass of wine. And they'll sit there in companionable silence in Burke Hall reading books and just being with each other in each other's company. But neither one needs something from the other. And that's that great relationship where they both exist in their own right but love to spend time together. And, you know, she has a retreat. She still goes back to Ray Mill, her own house that she had before they got married. They give each other space in that way. And, you know, we don't all have, you know, our separate houses to go up to where we've <laughs> had enough of our partners. But if only. That, yeah. that element of space is quite, any married couple will know that sometimes having your own headspace or whatever is really helpful. So I think that works. I think their personalities are a really good match for one another as well. They have so much fun. Great yeah. sense of humour. They love to read, albeit different things. She's really into fiction and he loves to read other things. But their discussions, she's intellectual, she challenges him and he loves that and he needs that. And I think with his young bride right at the start with Diana, that wasn't... No. They won a great match. You've both been on tours. You go to engagements across the country. Now when we see William and Kate, we know the engagements that we love which is when they're sporty engagements where they're competing. you know they're competing yeah. and they're just having fun in which type of engagements do you see the real Charles and Camilla as they are that's a really good question I think that for me it's when they are quite often watching a performance oh, of, yeah. of some sort and <laughs> something will tickle them I remember being on a visit to the US with them back in about 2015 I think and someone in a fantastic military costume, I think it might have been at George Washington's house in Virginia. Sorry to any US listeners who will, can correct me on this. Someone stepped forward and started playing this lovely piece of music. But the whole thing was just a little bit surreal. I can't quite put my finger on why it was, but the two of them were dissolving. And it was absolutely no disrespect to this performer whatsoever. But I think they managed to find these moments where they catch each other's eye. And there's yes, a sort they of split it. second <laughs> moment yeah. of knowing that they're both thinking the same thing. And I think that's really special. But I think that's Camilla, though. I think that she's got that kind of glint in her eye. She is mischievous at times. I remember one of the courtiers saying to me at one point that they'd caught Camilla's eye at just the wrong moment during some kind of official welcome ceremony or something 
And they just kept thinking, I better not look at HRH as she was then, Her Majesty as she is now, as I, and I just can't look at Camilla's face because I'm just going to crack up. And they looked up, saw her, she winked at them, and they were, that's it, they were destroyed. They were kind of, <laughs> had to feign a coughing fit because they were laughing so much. But she'll just give the one kind of, you know, you imagine that person at, at school, school that yeah, gets you in yeah. trouble. You get into trouble for <laughs> laughing, and they're, because they just sort of gone at the right moment. But no, she has that kind of comic timing. She's great fun, I think. Harry and Meghan had a moment like that as well. Liam Payne did a performance and then the camera went to them in the audience and they're just giggling at each other. I think he fist bumped his performers and they oh, both gosh. just like, lost it. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. I guess there's all these in-jokes as well. Yeah, I mean, the couples sometimes have you can't resist. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So how important to the firm is it for royal romances to succeed? Oh, it's the lifeblood, isn't it, of the royal family for the romances to succeed, for them to produce heirs and spares oh. and all that sort of thing. It's about it continuing, about the next generation, about new life and new love. And it's just a brilliant story, isn't it, of the kind of royal romance, the fairy tale. And it's a never-ending kind of story, really. You know, I look at my five-year-old daughter and all the stories that she's interested in are those fairy tale weddings that, you know. It's interesting though, isn't it, that things did all sort of work out though, despite all the divorces that happened in the 80s and 90s. Like they still recovered from them and they're thriving now, most of them. I think for the most part, it is a happy ending for Everyone. the royal family, apart from them, you would like to see, of course, the late Princess Diana. You know, yeah, she was alive and settled with some brilliantly fabulously wealthy tech billionaire or something like that. I think that would have been the cherry on the top for her to be set on and for her to have had that, her, that happy ending. That happy because yeah. it's a yeah. But you're right, for the others, they have had their own happy ending, yeah, haven't I, they? You're right. I think I was thinking the royal children, but you're so right. Of course, it's, yeah, yeah. You're I so mean, right. You, know, you just hope that Harry and Meghan can be happy together. They've got this wonderful life together in yeah. Montecito. And I think so many people in the palace here wish them well. And just hope that they're really happy out there. William and Kate certainly seem very happy. We all have our ups and downs in relationships, but most of us don't have to appear in public with a smile on our faces just after we've had a row about who's putting the bins out. How do royals do this? Are they all just brilliant actors? Or do you think that what you see is what you get with them? I think it's probably a bit of both. We all have our game face because if we're turning up to, you know, Auntie Sue's 70th birthday party and we just had a round, one of the kids has just puked everywhere and you're just trying, you're trying to like... Come. You're getting something off your chest. Here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a therapy session, yes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think we are all doing that, right? We're all kind of going, okay, now I'll play the dutiful niece or the dutiful daughter or I'll be Prince William and I'm not just dad. But there was a brilliant moment when they're getting ready for the coronation. And yes. the Wales has put out a little video afterwards. But they turned up a bit late. Yes, there was a little bit of a snaffle, <laughs> yes. wasn't there? There was a little look between Kate and William, but the look wasn't like, oh my goodness, why didn't you get them out earlier? It was almost like kind of, oh gosh, you know, parent life, eye raise. So there, sometimes you do get those glimpses, don't you, behind the scenes. And I think the Wales is a keen for us to see a bit more of that. I mean, we had the baby Waleses out at their help out day. We get to see Prince Louis and we know that they're just great regular kids and he's there with his wheelbarrow and all the sort of fun stuff. And I think they're increasingly confident to show us a little bit behind the curtain to show us that that's kind of real life. Yeah. You saying that just reminded me, actually, that the women are really good at putting on a show. But, like, Charles was really annoyed that day when they were late and you could tell that he was annoyed. and well, he was a lip reader well, And he was, he was annoyed having a little with, bit of a grumble in the yeah, carriage. And he was, he, was annoyed. Annoyed. <laughs> he was annoyed with a pen. And, you know, Camilla just, like, happy, standing there, smiling. And we've kind of seen that, actually, maybe the men aren't so good at hiding Smile it. and wave, dear. Smile yeah. and wave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think in defence of Pengate... Pengate! Well, it, was, it, it came very, very soon. I mean, within days after the Queen's death, he have a lot on his oh, plate. He did God, not yeah. stop no, for those first no. four days or whatever um, happened and let, to it, Let's face it, it gave us all a bit of a giggle. What yeah, was yeah. Quite a sombre moment. Yes. So, you know, I, I think we can forgive him that. We hold them up to different accounts, don't we? We put them on a pedestal in a way and sometimes it's nice to see that they are human like the rest of us. Yeah. Actually, I think it's quite nice. I think it's quite refreshing to think. I call, oh, pen, I I call pens you stinking pens all the time now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but as well, it's very sort of apple doesn't fall far from his dad. Because you can imagine Philip being oh, like yeah. that. I just think nice. us women are better at smiling we and then when we get no home no offence we'll... to our male <laughs> listeners yeah exactly 
I just wanted to know, with the royals, when they've gotten engaged, they've told their story, they've told us how it happened. Do you think it really did happen like that? Or are they keeping some details for themselves? Oh, the latter, surely. I hope so. Yeah. I hope they're keeping a bit for themselves. Well, we know from Harry and Meghan that they got married three days before they got married. Yeah. Well, that was a detail we held back. Mm, recollections may vary, I think, whether <laughs> Archbishop of Canterbury on that one. But yes, basically done their vows in a private, informal way, and that's what they took to be the actual marriage. It's quite nice, though, isn't it, that they did that, that they kind of said, okay, it's themselves. about us. Yeah. It's not actually about the big show and the machine and everything, which, as it, we later learned, Harry had such an issue with. Yeah. Didn't they keep their engagement to themselves as well? You know, like the roasting a chicken and then he proposed. That wasn't it, was it? We found out later they were in the garden. It was set up a picnic. But also, you know, like I said, the late Queen and Prince Philip, they kept that engagement yes. secret if we're right. And perhaps one day we'll find out from the The letters. real truth. I break the story about Paul Wybrew, the Queen's loyal page, going through her documents after she had passed away. And in there will be the details of the romance between her and Philip, which they wrote to each other for years and years before they got engaged because they'd known each other for so many years. And the letters were said to be cousinly because obviously it wasn't a romance as such, but they were in touch for a long time. And when he went off to war, we were told that she had a picture of him by her bedside. Oh, my. I mean, imagine that treasure trove. And so those secret moments, the lead up to what we all now know. Yeah. I'm sure they keep so much of it secret, and I really hope they do, because you must be constantly trying to claw back some kind of privacy when you're living such a public life. And I think that's healthy. I wonder whether it adds a bit of something to the romance. You know, you've got this, like, secret thrill thing going on as well. I think that's why the king loves Scotland. Mm. I was up in Braemar in February, speaking to some of the locals, and they said, oh, it's great because you can just wander around. No one bothers him. Mm. Which, you can't imagine him walking down Kensington High Street and nobody bothering him down here. But in Scotland, everyone just says, oh, yeah, well, that's a king. You know, yeah. and he's up and, they respect and the queen was the same, the late queen. So she would go into the shops around there and buy little bits and pieces and chat to people. And she would take walks around Windsor and often would not be recognised. There was a brilliant moment that one of her former courtiers said to me that American tourists in Windsor came up to her in Windsor Great Park and said, do you know, you look really like the queen. And she said, oh, that's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and off she went. And it was only later when she was far away, they kind of went, Oh, I I think that actually was the question. <laughs> but I thought, what a brilliant response. Oh, that's reassuring. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that. That was brilliant. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. That was really fun to discuss with you. And I could pick your brain about many, many more Royal Tour moments. We'll have to have you back another time. I love when Emily's friends come on. <laughs> I really do. Well, I was just thinking in my insightful. brain. I was just, well, I was just thinking. I thought better not say it. I said, well, there are lots of stories I'd like to tell down the pub, but perhaps not on. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, by all means, we'll get a couple of drinks in. We'll need to do this recording to the pub next time. But no, seriously, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to be here. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Bye. It was so lovely having your friend over for tea. <laughs> <laughs> Loved Kate. Yeah, I thought that was a really thoughtful chat, actually. And it's really great sometimes to hear another person's perspective on something that I witnessed as yeah. well, you know, because people have such different opinions But it's on so great because you have similar memories and you remind each other of things that have happened. And it's just really nice to sit next to you I guys. feel like there were some more anecdotes about you in the woodwork there, Emily, that we will have to get out of Kate next time she joins us. Well, you know, we've got to save something for later. <laughs> Right, on to our next guest. Who's excited to talk to writer and broadcaster Hugo Vickers? Ooh, I am. Let's welcome him. Welcome, Hugo. So for our listeners who may not know your journey with the royal family, are you able to explain how it all came up? Yes. Well, I lived in London as a child and I was a Hyde Park baby in a pram, you know, in the days that people used to do that. And my mother said that although I probably never saw Queen Mary, she might well have seen me because she used to be driven out in the afternoons in her Daimler from Marlborough House. I was probably about one and a half when she died. Then thereafter, my mother took me to see the state visit of the Shah of Persia in 1959 in the Mall, And I enjoyed it so much that I insisted on seeing de Gaulle's state visit the following year. And that's where the interest began. And it began as a kind of 
train spotting, stamp collecting type of interest. And thank goodness it got harnessed at a certain point and became more used. Do you know what I mean? I used to cut out press cuttings and stick them in books and the sort of things that kids do. But I mean, mine was about the royal family. And when I was at my prep school, there was a wonderful book called Concise Universal Biography, which in two volumes. And I was the only person who ever looked at it. It was an amazing book. It had everybody from Jesus Christ to Fred Astaire. It was published in 1934. And when I went back to the school some years later, my markers were still in place. So that oh. and also Madame Tussaud, which used to have an amazing guidebook, which had biographical entries of all the different people. And in those days, they had all the kings and queens of Britain. Now they just have celebrity ones. was probably how I got interested. And as I say, luckily, it got harnessed. Then the next thing that happened really was St. George's Chapel, because I was very lucky to be taken there by my prep school headmaster. And that was where at the age of 16, I first met the Queen and the Queen Mother on the same afternoon, one after another. Now, we're here to talk about royal love stories. Now, having spent decades getting to know the royal family and those around them, are you able to tell me if royals are romantic? <laughs> yes, I think they are romantic. I mean, the marriage of the Queen and Prince Philip was certainly based on romance. You know, the Queen Mother, I think, was uh, rather hoping she was going to marry a grenadier guard like the Duke of Grafton. In fact, I think it's probably... The only time, really, if you think about it with the Queen, that she absolutely acted totally independently and out of step, if you like, by finding this glamorous war hero, naval officer who happened to be a prince of Greece and Denmark. And I mean, they, as you know, you've seen the pictures. I mean, they were an amazingly good looking couple. And if a sort of person is fashionable at a certain time, somebody like Prince Philip was absolutely the most fashionable type of man that a girl would go for in the late 40s. A good-looking Adonis kind of character with a good war record. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on, they changed. I mean, Diana and Fergie were both sort of Sloan Rangers when they came on the scene. And I suppose Sloan Rangers were the person of the moment in that respect. Sloan Rangers, what does that mean? Oh, Emmy, you're making us feel old now. <laughs> yeah, I thought everybody... Well, of course, the trouble is I'm so old now that... I know <laughs> you're not. No, no. I, I know what a Slone Ranger is. Don't no, worry, that's, Hugo. that's my job. I ask all the silly questions. Well, to be honest, I don't know what, the, what it is <laughs> oh, either. Okay, it's not just me then. You're quite right to ask because, I mean, I think it was basically Debbie girls that were found around Sloan Square, you know, with oh. Chanel Hutbergs and those sort of, you know, debutantes going to parties and staying away at the weekend, coming home with pheasants in the back of the car. It sounds very lovely to be one. I wish I was a Sloan Ranger. It was a very 80s thing, wasn't it? I think it was a real sort of de decade of excess it, and it just uh, sound like good they times. Had a, a very good time of things, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think Sloan Rangers went to university or sort of did anything very constructive. So interestingly, if you're talking about those romances, Diana, she came from Sandringham. You know, she'd been brought up in the shadow of Sandringham House. Fergie came from the polo ground at Smith's Lawn. Her father was Prince Charles's polo manager. So geographically, that's where you place them. And that's not the sort of Prince Philip type of girl who would have been, or somebody like the Queen of Sweden, you know, who'd been an Olympic interpreter and guide, you know, speaking five languages and that sort of thing. I mean, they were completely different Sloan Rangers, basically. Well, I think they were usually quite thick, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> now, out of all the royal couples, who would you say was the most romantic? Well, I think going back to the Queen and Prince Philip, I think that was based, as I said, entirely on romance. And I think, of course, it's a very fascinating, long and successful marriage that where you have them like two oak trees standing side by side. And I mean, he was not a quiet person around the house. He was the sort of person who, if something was mentioned, well, why are you doing it like that? I mean, have you thought about doing it this way? There's a much better way to do it. you know. And he was always very argumentative. And by arguing, you get to a consensus if you just agree and say, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. You don't get anywhere. But he loved an argument. And so... I've always thought that must have been an extraordinary thing. If you like that sort of thing, I mean, it must be quite stimulating and also quite exhausting. But I mean, to be married to somebody like that for 73 years is an amazing achievement you know, <laughs> to have that continually in the house, you know, that sort of frenetic atmosphere. So I think they were very romantic as a couple. I would say that was a very good romance. I think what's interesting about them as well is that they've always said that he was the only person who could speak to her like that and the only person who did speak to her frankly, and that must have been really refreshing for her. 
Yes. And I think that he worked out very early on when they uh, got married and after the king died. I mean, he lost his naval career, but I mean, he soon picked himself up being a practical man and realized that, you know, he could support the queen in all sorts of different ways. And yet when he wasn't needed, he would be doing his award schemes and his national playing fields and an enormous amount of other things too. So I think that he was very supportive to her. I mean, they were very constructive as a couple. I mean, they were very focus, both of them. And so when he was being supportive to her, if he said saw something going wrong, yes, he would say so. And she would listen, definitely. And I think, again, he had no official role in the constitution at all. So she had that side, but he did alleviate her burden by running all the royal estates. And of course, I think he was very much the man who decided which schools the children went to. I mean, he was the master of the house in a family sense. And also, which you may not know, after George VI died and the Queen Mother moved out to Clarence House, the Queen gave Prince Philip the King's rooms. He had the rooms that the King would normally have, which was amazing. Going back in time even further from the late Queen and Prince Philip, why was Britain so scandalised between the romance of Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson? Was it just because she was a divorcee? What can you tell us about that? Well, that was a very tricky one. While she was married to Mr. Simpson, nobody minded very much. At the time it became a panic was when she instituted divorce proceedings against him, at which point they got frightened that they might marry. Well, the King of England in those days as head of the Church of England uh, would not have been allowed to marry a woman with two husbands living. Mm. Some people would say it's because she was American. I don't think that particularly mattered. But it was just one of those terrible things. And I do not think that she was the woman who stole the king. I actually think that he must have realized that they wouldn't accept her. And even if it was subconscious, she was a means of escape for him. Right. Having gone, of course, he then wanted to come back again and reinvent himself as the younger brother of the king, go and live at Fort Belvedere and do exactly what he liked. What he didn't realize was that he had seriously let the country down and his family down. Even his members of his family talked about him in the past tense sometimes after his wow. abdication. And I've seen all the letters that his family wrote to him at the time of the abdication. And some of them, his sister, Princess Mary, would sort of say, well, really don't understand why people do these things. And then she just went on being his sister and it was fine. But others basically said, we're very sorry to lose you and goodbye. And they virtually never saw him again. It's a very strange situation. Of course, Goodness. times have moved on and things have changed. Yeah. I mean, you wonder whether... Princess Margaret sort of being discouraged. She wasn't prevented from marrying group captain Peter Townsend. She could have married him. But there was a fuss about her marrying a divorced Aquary. Whereas when Princess Anne married Tim Lawrence and he was unmarried and she was a divorced princess, there was no fuss at all. So times have moved on dramatically. It is interesting, isn't it? And also, you know, dare I say slightly hypocritical that it's fine that the king could have carried on with Wallace as a married woman, as an affair. But then wanting to make it official was where everyone had a problem. Yeah, <laughs> everyone took umbrage with. Yeah. I think that's just a reflection of society at the time as well, wasn't it? People. How does that make sense? Then? <laughs> well, <laughs> make I, it make sense. Well, I think if you were potentially going to become the queen, that was an entirely different thing, wasn't it? And, you know, people had terrible dramas anyway with getting divorced. I mean, divorce was a huge stigma in those yeah. days. I mean, obviously, there were small things like, you know, you couldn't go to Royal Ascot into the Royal Enclosure. But people had to resign when they got divorced from positions. And, wow. and in the royal household, there was a man who was working in, I think, the Privy Purse Department. And he divorced his wife and married one of the Queen's press secretaries. She kept her job and he lost his. Wow. And that was in the 70s. Oh, I think. Wow. Yeah. yeah, well, good for but actually, Sorry, refreshing to hear that actually the woman kept her yeah. job because quite, <laughs> yeah. quite often in history it didn't work she would out be that blamed. way. Yeah. It's interesting to think that the late Queen and Prince Philip had a, such a long, successful marriage, yet whatever secret it was that made it a successful marriage, they could not share or didn't work for three of their children. Yes, that is interesting. And I suppose, again, it's what we've been saying in a general sense, it's different times. And, you know, people give up very much more easily, don't they, with marriages if they go wrong these days. And in those days, I think people stuck it out, you know. And I actually used to think that with the Prince and Princess of Wales, maybe it's difficult now because it's so difficult to kind of like go back into the mindset. But what the press do, as you know very well, is they build people up and then they try and knock them down. And I lived through all that Diana phase and they tried to knock her down quite a lot after a couple of years and they always failed. She somehow bounced back and she was always on top. But eventually they did detect 
that there was trouble in that marriage. And then they really needled them, you know. I just wonder if she could have been a little bit more relaxed and whether she perhaps you know, was minded less about certain things, whether they couldn't have possibly gone on. But I think I'm talking nonsense now because, of course, you see it all in a completely different light yeah. with the hindsight. I do think the press had a big part in the destroying of that marriage. And of course, all those telephone calls that were intercepted. I mean, don't tell me that there was some boffin sitting in a shed who said, oh, oh hello. Oh, that's the <laughs> Prince of Wales talking. Here. No, 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 no. They will have recorded him and recorded him and recorded him until they finally got him saying something ridiculous, which they could make a, yeah. a mess of. That story is incredible. That is really interesting, actually, because from what I perceive over the years, the press did leave Philip and the Queen's relationship quite alone. I mean, it's in the crown. Until I don't know. the crown. I don't know if it's real life, but they have a blazing row with each other and it gets caught on film because there's press there but they give the reel back to the queen and then she does an interview with them whereas that wouldn't happen now would it if they had that footage I'm they'd pretty, use I'm pretty it. sure it didn't happen at the time but um, <laughs> I think, I'll see if I can find the story Emmy loves the crown and oh, he leaves everything she sees in it I, I, th- I think there was an, a sort of an unspoken it goes back to deference doesn't it that from their generation there was much greater deference from the media towards the royal family And actually, it was getting into the 70s and 80s where things became a bit wilder in terms of coverage. And maybe that just stayed with their generation. I mean, the press almost went to sleep on Friday afternoon and didn't wake up again until Monday morning, did they? Now it's sort of 24 hours every day of the week. And of course, that means that there's an appetite to fill that space and time and things. And I mean, it's interesting, and you'd know this, Emily, better than me probably, but when there's something big happening, like a coronation or a a royal wedding, then the press are all very eager to follow it. But if there's nothing happening, they start picking away, don't they, and wondering whether they can find some mischief to drum up. It's funny you should say that. Somebody asked me only yesterday, what do you do when it's a quiet news week? And I said, hey, there's never a quiet news week anymore Mm. because we have this sort of 24-hour culture because the royals are a lot more visible, I guess. You know, vacuums attract attention and people want to fill the gap and that there's an appetite for it. And I think it's easy to blame the media, and rightly so in many cases, but there's an appetite for it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be serving it up. It's interesting to see, given how difficult it is to sign up to being a member of the royal family, just because you happen to fall in love with a particular person, What sort of character traits do you think it takes for someone to hold on in there, hang on in there, if you like? Don't you think sometimes the people who marry into the royal family have a rather strange idea as to what it actually involves? And what it really involves is being supportive and non-competitive. I mean, in a generalisation, I'd say the most successful members of the royal family are the ones who didn't compete with the Queen or now with the King, but just support him. I mean, the Duke of Kent is a supreme example of that. I mean, he just answers the call at any point to go off and do something, very often at very short notice. And it's where you get a sort of Diana's, I suppose. I mean, she probably didn't set out to compete, but eventually she did, which was a pity. But I mean, they do work very hard and they don't always do terribly exciting things, as you probably know, (laughs) if you look at the court circular, what their duties are. But of course, they also give an enormous amount of pleasure to people all over the country. And particularly, I know that the press office in the past, I don't really know the people there now, but they always said, oh, just wish we could get journalists to come and see members of the royal family when they're in Staffordshire or when they're in Lancashire or they're in Birmingham or something. Well, I get to do that, all that glamorous <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, because actually when you see the impact that a royal visit has on an organisation and on people who are doing amazing things within their community, it is genuinely uplifting. And the trouble is that people either want celebrities or royalty. They don't want mayoresses or uh, lord lieutenants and people doing things. They're bought by those people. So uh, you get a much better deal out of the royal family than you do out of a celebrity who's going to demand a, a car and probably a fee and may or may not be very civil when they get there. They do do a lot. What do you think is the secret to working alongside your spouse in the public eye like this? Because that's one thing that royals have in their relationships that most of us don't need to contend with. Most of us aren't (laughs) having to work with our partners on a day-to-day basis. That would drive me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you guys. (laughs) I I probably should just not comment on this. 
as you know, Prince Charles got fed up when, you know, he was trying to make an important speech and all that was reported was what Diana was wearing when sitting on the platform beside him. So that was a pity. But I think that's always going to be the case that people are going to be more interested in the woman because she's more glamorous and she'll always be wearing pretty clothes and people like all that. So I don't see why it shouldn't work. And by the way, as far as Prince Philip was concerned, people always said, oh, it must have been awful for him walking two or three steps behind the Queen. I don't think he minded at all. I think he had been brought up as a minor member of the Greek royal family. He knew the position. He knew the setup entirely. And actually, the Queen would do it in a certain way, certain things she would say. And he'd come along and he'd like to get a rise out of people and get a laugh or get a response of any kind, you know. And so I think he was perfectly happy doing that. I've actually, you've just reminded me of a couple of occasions covering them on engagements where you'd have this sort of hushed silence as the Queen walked through and shook hands. And then it was almost like someone reporting in from LA or something. There was a few seconds delay and then there'd just be a ripple of laughter behind at something that he had said. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like this fantastic double act, actually. Yeah, I think that's true. As I say, he liked to argue, but he only had such a short time to get a rise out of somebody. I mean, I use the example that, as it were, if you had painted a picture and it was his job to come and look at your picture, he could say, what a lovely picture, and walk away. Or he could say to you, why on earth did you paint the sky green when we patently know it's blue? Well, if you then said, oh, didn't think about that, then he'd walk away. But if you said, oh, but you see, the thing is, I sit there in the evenings and the sun hits the wall and the sky does appear to be green. Well, he's engaged with you. He's got your technique. And you can go away saying he likes your picture you know so that's the sort of thing you did yeah you've seen a lot of royal couples up close working together who was the perfect duo behind the scenes and publicly well i, I hate to keep going back to the queen and prince uh, Philip, but I, hey. I do think that the present prince and princess of wales do have a fantastic job as well yeah. i mean uh she, they have and, fun. And so does Edward and Sophie, I mean, she again has completely got the balance right. She's really good and she's very good on engagements, as I'm sure you know, Emily. I mean, you must have seen her many times. I mean, she's superb at it. And so I would say they were very good together. I mean, people like the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester, perfectly, they work perfectly well together, but people don't really know about them so much. So probably we should stick to the, the key figures, really. There are a lot of unsung heroes, I think, aren't there, in the royal family Absolutely. who are doing these trips to Staffordshire and <laughs> yeah. north of Scotland and all sorts of places and, and don't get the coverage that they might otherwise. I wanted to pick your brain about royals showing their affection in public because I think it has changed an awful lot, especially over the last few years where it used to be very much behind closed doors, you'd be tactile and save it for behind closed doors. And now that's less so. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I personally probably think it's a bad thing because all this sort of kissing on the balcony and stuff, yes. But, you know, the thing about hereditary monarchy, to give you a very sort of boring straight answer, is that every generation will do things differently and they have to appeal to the generation of the time. So they don't have to appeal to me. So when you get, I remember thinking when Prince William was like, picking up Prince George from the hospital when he was born. He was in an open shirt and he was manoeuvring the car seat and he was driving himself. They're so different from Prince Charles and Diana who got into the back of the car and were driven by a chauffeur. And it's much more informal and they probably chatted more to the press at the time. That has to be, and that's exactly how it's going to be for the next generation. I'd rather like the um, distance of the Queen and Prince Philip and the way they did things, but that's just because of my age, really. No, that's a very good, reasonable answer, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And, you, and yeah. I think we touched on this earlier. We were talking about sort of retaining that mystique because yeah. there is a yes. danger, isn't there, in becoming too much of an open book, I think. Very much so. I mean, it's always been said. And I think they had to do that royal family film because I think that they had to address television and television properly used can be very useful. And we got to know more about what they did through that film and from one or two, the Edward Mertzoff 1992 documentary about the Queen was extremely good. I mean, the great success really of the Queen was she didn't know what she was thinking. Mm. So she could be thinking anything. She must have learned at a certain stage that she had more to gain by saying nothing. Very effective. Well, it's been great chatting to you, Hugo. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm a long way away, but I'm glad it worked anyway. Well, if I didn't ship the late Queen and Prince Philip before, I certainly do now. That was some lovely stories about their relationship there from Can you you translate that for elderly people (laughs) like me? Ship, it's like worship. Oh, It's like you say, you you know, when there's like a couple in, in the public eye who... 
You really, really I've like. I've never heard that, know. and I consider myself young, Emmy. Oh well, maybe have some reconsideration. <laughs> we're, we're all learning. We're all... <laughs> There's I a takeaway for everyone here. Well, hey, I learned what the Sloan Rangers were, so we're all learning things today. We actually do learn a lot during these chats, and I hope our listeners do too. And, and if not, at least I hope they find it quite funny. Yes. <laughs> So that's everything from us today. Thank you so much to all of our guests and to you two for joining us. We'll be back to talk about what it means to become part of the royal family. In the meantime, catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye.